Devon, the editor. We lost the first few minutes of both these tracks, so I'm just going to plonk you in in media res in a minute. Um, so hello, welcome to 10,000 Posts, the show about how everything is posting. Uh, it's just Hussein on this one. Um, and who are you joined by, Hussein? Take it away. And this week we have Derek Guy. Uh, Derek Guy, you might know him as the menswear guy on Twitter. Um, you might also have seen him around as someone that lots of people get mad at for like more bizarre and obscure reasons. Um, I'll let I'll let him sort of explain what's going on. Um, Derek, how are you doing? Uh, and for people who aren't familiar with you, uh, can you tell us like what you do? Sure. Uh, well, first, thank you for having me on. Um, I am a menswear writer, and um, my Twitter handle is Die Workwear. Um, I kind of have somewhat gained a large audience over the last year or so. Um, and yeah, I guess some people call me the menswear guy on Twitter. Yeah, I think like uh, this is like a very like succinct, a very like sort of succinct answer. And I feel I feel like it's an interesting place to start because I you know I think if you've been on Twitter for a long time your introduction to the scene or your introduction to like how like most people have sort of who have been on Twitter, but a very particular part of kind of political shitposting Twitter kind of came in touch with you was almost by accident. Like you kind of the first time people sort of had heard of you, it was because you had become the guy that showed up on everyone's timeline when Elon Musk made the initial algorithmic changes. Um, I know that you've been through and gone through the story uh, many, many times. So like succinctly for people who are, again, like very unaware of how you sort of became the menswear guy and sort of like one of the last main characters on Twitter. Can you talk about how that happened and like whether you had any thoughts on like, you know, looking back on that, are there any things that you were posting that you think led you to kind of becoming this character almost by accident? I, to be honest, I'm just as confused as anyone else. I'm probably more confused than anybody. Um, it kind of around October of last year, I had maybe about 50,000 followers, which I built over maybe about, you know, kind of time span of 10 years on Twitter. And then I got into a brief spat with Dave Portnoy of Barstool Sports. He started a watch brand where he was trying to sell $2,400 watches. And one of the watches had a $40 uh, movement inside. And I criticized it online. Um, and then he ended up making a video about how I'm an idiot and how I'm wrong and so on and so forth. And um, that that kind of blew up. A, a <laughs> bunch of people ended up um, following me after that. There was like a whole kind of like back and forth about Dave Portnoy's watch brand. And then I got a bunch of followers from that. And then Somebody, one of his followers said, um, well, how's this different from how Ralph Lauren buys cashmere sweaters for $5 and sells them for 500 And before this point, I mainly made kind of like in-group jokes on Twitter for guys who were obsessed with men's clothing. Because all of the people that followed me were people that were, were like really into like Japanese workwear and tailoring and mm. Ivy style and all of this stuff. So I, I was making basically kind of like hobbyist jokes. And um, it's just for that moment, I screenshotted this person's tweet. And I said, I want to talk about how the cashmere industry works and uh, why cheap cashmere is bad, um, how to spot good quality cashmere, and where you can mm -hmm. get good quality cashmere sweaters if you don't have a lot of money. And that thread went really viral. I got a bunch of like newspaper editors contacting me after that. And then after that, I did a thread on mm. um, how much it costs to make 
dress shirts in the United States and how to dress larger male figures. And and I found over time is that, um, you know, like people appreciate earnest, helpful information. I mean, that sounds obvious, but um, like shit posting and, and in-group jokes are fun. But like when you tweet useful <laughs> information, people... Mm. enjoy it. And then once Elon Musk instituted the For You timeline, I just ended up getting picked up a lot because I was doing these kind of like, um, I don't know, these kind of, I guess, uh, service-oriented threads, if you will, like just giving people information. Um, Mm. And yeah, end of October of last year, I had maybe 50,000 followers. And now I'm somewhere, I don't know. I don't know what the number is, but it's more than 50,000. Yeah. (laughs) No need to flex. No need to flex. I mean, I was also going to ask you about your um, experiences on the internet prior to Twitter. Um, like, were you a forums guy? Like, what types of forums were you on? If so, like, what types of online communities were you part of? And were you talking about menswear during that time? Like, and uh, because I, I sort of imagine that if you were, then you've had quite an interesting experience, like going on to Twitter where you're sort of finding people who are like tangentially interested in this subject or people who like, aren't interested at all and are sort of wondering why you've sort of shown up and maybe that goes some way into explaining why some people kind of react with like these this like in in quite bizarre ways like much more bizarre than perhaps uh is warranted yeah so i grew up on like menswear blogs and forums um since like around like the mid 2000s i started reading um menswear blogs and then i Lurked, asked Andy about clothes and a little bit of super future, super denim, but I mainly spent most of my time on style forum and sometimes on this mm. other forum called um, the London Lounge. I also sometimes looked at like um, Cutter and Taylor, which was like a tailoring forum, but I was mainly 90% of the time on style forum. And um, I read, you know, blogs by guys who were just obsessive about clothes. I mean, there was like a blog just a guy that was obsessed about Alden shoes. Um, heavy tweed jacket was just about like right. um, old Ivy style and like some Japanese menswear magazines, um, a suitable wardrobe. I read all these kind of like niche blogs and um, I, I guess I would just consider myself a clothing guy. I just, I really love clothing. That's it. That's really nothing more to it than that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I brought that up is just because, well, partly because it's like interesting to sort of see the back or like hear about the backgrounds of posters. Uh, but the other part is that one of the things that we talk about on this show is how Twitter and platforms like Twitter function in this weird way where a lot of the engagement and traffic kind of, uh, especially when it comes to sort of rage baiting, sort of comes from a situation where you post something that was designed for one set of people, but ends up in the, it ends up in areas that where other people for whom the post was not designed for or written for end up seeing it and feel a degree of entitlement to interpret and to react to it. And where like in the past, you know, where, especially if you had like, you know, weird observations, like not weird observations, but like if you had like hobbies or if you had like niche uh, interests and stuff, like going to those forums would sort of mean that there was like a lexicon and a hierarchy that really mediated the way in which these communities would sort of function. And then in the platform economy, none of that is there. And so as a result, like a lot of the ways that we interact with each other or we interact with people, especially people we don't know, 
comes from this place of like getting mad at things that were never really designed for us anyway. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that, especially because I think when I, when I see your, when I see some reactions to your posts, when I talk about like bizarre reactions, sometimes it's kind of like, okay, you've done a thread, for example, about, uh, you know, understanding, you know, so today I think was a good example at the time of recording where you've done this post about how to tell like different qualities of shoes. And like you have reactions that are like, you know, basically getting really mad at you for various reasons. And I'm like, if you want to elaborate on them, like, please go ahead. But my interpretation of it was very much like, but yeah, but this thread probably wasn't designed for you. Like if you're getting mad about expensive shoes and, you know, tailoring styles and stuff and like, you can sort of scroll past it, but yet there is this kind of impulse that we just can't, we have to react to it, even if these things don't sort of pertain to us. And I wondered whether you had any thoughts on that as someone who like has had a lot of reactions in a very similar vein. Yeah, so I have a couple of thoughts. One is that um, I've noticed I've noticed the same thing. And, and it's kind of a double-edged sword because in, you know, like 10 years ago when I was, you know, kind of mainly on forums and menswear blogs, um, to come across this information, you'd have to have an interest in men's clothing. And then you'd have to know about a website or a forum. And then you'd have to go to that URL. And then mm. you'd have to do that on a daily basis to then accrue knowledge. And then you'd be part of a community and then you'd discuss things. And the way that Twitter works now, uh, after, especially after Elon Musk instituted the For You timeline, is that my information not only goes to a broader range of people because of retweets, but it also just gets fed into people's timelines without them ever even asking for it. So I end up showing up on people's timelines, even if they're not interested in clothes. And the upside to that Mm. is that I've gotten really, I I mean, I'm genuinely, um, it's really kind of refilled my my tank to get um, emails from people saying that you've inspired my interest in clothes, that I found a new hobby, that, you know, like I one guy said he like wore a suit one day, even though he didn't need to. And he felt great. And I was like, wow, that makes me feel really good. Like it it genuinely really um, it's really heartwarming for me to get these emails from people who say that they found a love for clothes because of my tweets, because I consider myself first and foremost, an enthusiast and a hobbyist. And I I love being able to inspire that love in other people. The downside is that, um, yeah, I also end up uh, getting a lot of angry tweets from people mm. who um, aren't interested in clothing and don't know why I'm showing up on their timeline. And I think there are two dimensions to this. One is that Twitter has its own ecosystem and its own conversation. So it's not completely neutral. And the ecosystem and the conversation is often heavily political and it's heavily, um, it's often a very angry timeline. So my tweet will show up in a stream of other tweets that are designed to make you angry and design are mainly talking about, um, you know, I'm not dismissing them. There are real issues of classism and racism and sexism and all this stuff. Um, But since my tweet about clothing shows up sandwiched between all of these tweets that are about these issues and the person is already angry, that person then, I think, often transposes that conversation onto my discussion about like pants. And again, there are real issues with clothing when it comes like absolutely there are issues with sexism and racism Mm -hmm. and all these things do dovetail with clothes because clothes 
are inherently political. Um, they are our ways to express our gender identity, um, our uh, our sense of belonging in groups, so on and so forth. But I end up getting, uh, I think, many more of those responses, partly because I'm showing up on a feed that's on a platform that's very political and often very angry. Mm-hmm. And I agree, the other thing is that the context is often lost. So to take an example, um, I one of my early threads on Twitter um, was about how to choose shoes for a dark suit. So if you're wearing a navy suit, I was saying you should get black or mid-brown shoes. And I was saying you shouldn't go for tan and you shouldn't go for these other kind of like wild colors like red and blue and green and whatever. And this comes from a long experience on forums and blogs where people used to talk about classic men's clothing and there was a very clear idea of what that meant. Like what is what is a classic style? Like what is what is that look? And over time, that community has kind of like evolved into this, in my view, more of a collector mentality. So people are less interested in dressing and more interested in buying expensive things and collecting them and then posting mm-hmm. photos of them online. And instead of buying, instead of like dressing in, in a classic outfit, many of these forms have just kind of evolved into people collecting really um, colorful or unusual shoes. So I was tweeting part of this conversation that was really part of a forum and blog conversation yeah. onto Twitter, and then people got it. And then we're talking about, well, black men in the South wear, you know, like really colorful shoes. But they're also like, they're not like that whole style is a different thing than a, a classic menswear look. And it's hard to have these conversations because there's so much context. If you go to a forum, there's a lot of context of what we're talking about, the aesthetic we're talking about. And there's a lot of understanding of like how this space has evolved over time. And then on Twitter, you're only allowed 280 characters. You can do a string of tweets, but you know, you're not going to explain the history of forums and blogs and classic men's style. And then it's just, you know, it's all lost. And then, and then you get accused of like racism and, and erasure and all this stuff, which again, I, these are, real issues. I'm not dismissing them, but it's just an example of how context is lost when you move it to different platforms and people um, are imposing their (laughs) own um, understanding of things onto your tweet. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's interesting just because I think the broader issue, the broader like observation that we've made on the show quite a lot as well is how you know, this is this does sort of feel like a kind of platform mediation problem. And part of it does sort of stem from the way in which the internet has changed. So that where, you know, you the only places where you can kind of communicate tend to be these very, very open platforms of which like are designed so that people who are not like part of certain communities and haven't sort of gone through that sort of structure that you sort of outlined can then kind of feel entitled to reacting to. And so as, but then there's also this added pressure to kind of like keep one-upping those reactions. And so as a result, like, you know, an example, uh, not of menswear, but when I sort of posted about, you know, the fact that a coffee place near my office where the price had sort of gone up by a couple of, you know, UK pounds. And then that sort of going from, you know, people just thinking that was like a funny observation, which I made to kind of just getting mad at me for not making it at home for being kind of like, you know, 
coming from money. And so this isn't really a real issue. Like it was really bizarre to sort of watch that, but it also does go to show that even like the most mundane of observations end up in this kind of like weird cycle as well. And um, I mean, like one of the things I was thinking about was like, has that sort of like affected the enjoyment that you've had from like, you know, um, like, did, did you sort of, I, I, you know, I, I know that you're still sort of covering and writing this and like, you still find like great pleasure in uh, doing so, but like, has it affected your enjoyment in terms of discovering different sort of like bits of information about like menswear history or writing about it? Um, how, how is like this new, this kind of like sense of online celebrity for lack of a better term, like how has that affected your relationship to the actual thing that you really love and care about? Honestly, on balance, um, the recent kind of s- surge in Twitter follows has really refilled my tank in terms of working as a menswear writer. I love getting emails from people saying, Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Um, I just had a phone call with somebody the other day that um, wanted help, you know, some personal help with um, their wardrobe. And they were just saying how good, um, you know, they bought some clothes that I recommended and they said, this is so much better than what I've been buying and it makes me feel so good. And clothes, I mean, clothes are, I think they're more important than many people say and they're not as important as, um, you know, like some people in the fashion industry proclaim. You know, they they are important to some degree. They're not the most important thing in the world. And it, it felt good to hear from somebody that, you know, I made them feel nice on a day-to-day basis. Um, on balance, it's been... Great. I love getting those emails. But yeah, in the very beginning, it was kind of tiring mm. to always get these like angry responses. And now partly they kind of wash over me because um, if I get like a hundred, yeah. you know, like let's say a million views on a tweet, I just expect that a percentage of them are going to be angry. And um, and it's yeah. not it's not my fault, you know, like I don't. Um, sure. I don't take it as personally anymore. And then sometimes when I feel the urge to respond or get upset, I just end up blocking the person instead of replying. And I just figure I'm just going to keep my peace and um, not not get sucked into, you know, kind of like a debate. That said, there have been times where people um, corrected me and I thought it was a very useful correction. I um, relayed a story um, that a Christian friend told me, and um, this was part of a longer thread about um, the idea of dressing up. And I relayed some story that a Christian friend told me from, I think it was the Old Testament, maybe. Mm-hmm. And then some Jewish followers corrected me and said, this is actually kind of like, um, in some ways, deeply anti-Semitic. And this is, these are the ways that it's anti-Semitic, um, this, this story about the Old Testament and so on and so forth. And I read it and, you know, I genuinely found that useful to understand and know. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think I took away something from it. Um, but then, you know, there were a lot of people who were still angry at me. I mean, I, I kind of just, I don't know, you know, you get, you get a lot of responses and you just have, have to accept yeah, that sure. some of them are going to be angry. So that's it. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's fair enough. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about like men's wedger, cause like this is an area that, I, um, you know, I, I would not say that I am, uh, I, I am an expert in men's life, very, very far from it. Um, I basically buy all my clothes from Uniqlo, uh, but I have become a lot more interested in 
um, kind of the way that I look, especially now that I have a day job where I actually have to go outside. And so I have to really think about like what I wear and all that, which is like, you know, a fairly like common story. Um, but at the same time, so when I, when I was starting to look at like outfits and stuff in the past, I used to kind of like refer to magazines, uh, when I was first sort of really got trying to think about fashion and like the way that I wanted to look to the world. And then over time that sort of like moved to, um, YouTube, um, and I sort of wondered whether you could talk about how menswear online has kind of changed, because I think, as you mentioned earlier, like, you know, you sort of went to, you sort of posted on menswear forums and, uh, like I imagine among kind of like menswear obsessives, but as we've sort of headed towards like platformization, obviously like there is now this kind of new swave of men's orientated kind of like fashion channels. Uh, so can you like talk to us about how menswear online and the way that we talk about it and think about it has like changed? Like, I know that's like quite a big question. So like even broad strokes on just like how we sort of get from forums to like YouTube and TikTok. Yeah, that, be, like, that is very much appreciated. That is a very big question. I mean, in again, in, in, the, <laughs> in the mid 2000s to about 2015, so about a 10 year period, I'd say was heavily dominated by blogs and um, forums. And the blogs were mm. fed into people's kind of online consumption through either Google's uh, RSS reader or they were on Tumblr. So you get a stream of content. And mm. there'd be a hev- there would be a lot of, it was very image heavy. So, you know, you, you might be consuming thousands of images a day. And these conversations ended up kind of coalescing around the trends at the time, which were like Americana, Ivy style, some workwear. And it was all kind of pushing towards this, generally kind of um, somewhat classic look. And so people would go Mm. out and they would end up buying certain things or they engage in a conversation, understanding that there was this general aesthetic that was popular and, you know, people should wear. Over time, that trend has broken down. You know, those classic styles have proven to be their own trend. Um, So with the rise of streetwear in maybe around like, I'd say like 2015, around there. Um, And then also the kind of Mm. slow dissolution of blogs and forums um, and the migration over to YouTube and Instagram um, and now on Discord and TikTok, the conversations have somewhat changed. Um, The styles have changed. So we're no longer just talking about classic style. There is kind of this, um, one, there is a larger... Um, land, there, there's a more diverse landscape to choose from. So you can dress, you can do, all, you can still all do all those classic styles, but you can also do streetwear and you can do this kind of like bohemian chic patchwork, 90s revival, mm. 70s sleaze thing that we're, we see going on now. Um, so there are many, many aesthetics now to choose from. And then the platforms have also, um, shaped conversations and also created their own um, internal conversations. So, you know, um, to give an example, you know, there are certain kind of looks that are very popular on TikTok, especially among young people. Um, So the conversations there are often, you know, about like challenging uh, gender norms. Um, There are, let me think, you know, like on YouTube, there is, you know, all the kind of stuff. YouTube is a, is a, 
YouTube, has, you know, there, there are a lot of like, there's mm. a lot of stuff on YouTube that's about like kind of like male self-improvement um, and and, and yeah, fashion. Yeah. And then on Instagram, you have a lot of, you know, because of the way Instagram is structured, it's this kind of feed around sparse discourse, but very image heavy kind of content. You have a lot of like collecting, a lot of collecting mentalities. So people end up collecting watches or they end up collecting shoes because of things that they see on Instagram. And it ends up being less about the outfit and more just like showing off, like I bought this watch and, you know, I bought this, these shoes. And then they just show, they just show like the shoes on their feet, but like there's nothing else. There's no context mm. of the outfit. There's no context of like where you're wearing it to or any of that. Um, so yeah, all of these things end up shaping the conversation in some way. And it's just very different than where menswear discussions were 10 or 15 years ago because the styles have moved on, but also the platforms have like changed the conversation. Mm. I kind of wondered also about uh, the sort of newer platforms and like I think about TikTok in particular in terms of like the ways in which trend cycles work and I like I don't know too much about this but in terms of like um, there was like a really interesting essay that I always sort of go back to when I think about like trend cycles which is funnily enough like Jonah Peretti's BuzzFeed like pre-BuzzFeed MIT essay about how eventually like the internet will sort of like work at such a place that the aesthetics that one kind of requires in order to sort of do an identity formation will sort of get faster and faster. And so there would be harder to, uh, well, his argument is that it would be harder to sort of like set in stone an identity because by the time you had sort of accumulated the sort of like aesthetics necessary in order to assume that identity, um, a new one would kind of emerge. And so the process would kind of continue on and on. And so like for companies, like, you know, it would be better for them to kind of keep on reproducing products. You know, in his case, it would be, it was like content. But I feel like that could sort of apply to fashion as well. You sort of touched on it a bit in terms of like the ways in which like aesthetics kind of emerge on places like TikTok and sort of recirculate. Um, I wondered whether you could talk about that, but also its relationship to, uh, I guess what we kind of, call like fast fashion like the places like shine and everything where the sort of production is very much intertwined to social media platforms and as a result like the kind of the ways in which they produce clothes is very much kind of in order to almost keep in keep up to date with those platforms i don't know whether that's kind of uh the right way of thinking about it but i wondered whether you had thoughts on just like the relationship between these types of fast fashion places like um companies factories and so on and their relationship to newer and much faster online platforms more broadly yeah so um the the smartest thing that i've read recently that touches on this is david marx's new book it's either called culture and status mm. or status and culture i always get the two yeah, words we, mixed we, up yeah we we had him we had him on the show fairly recently uh so yeah it was it was very when i was right thinking about that question it was very much like yeah we spoke to david about that and like that's an interesting like follow up yeah so you know i would encourage people to pick up his book and then also listen to the podcast that you did with him um and he 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 in some ways, he's not saying anything particularly, the bulk of the book is not like novel, like three fourths of the book is synthesizing what anthropologists, sociologists, psychologists, economists, all of these different fields um, have said about why we consume the things that we consume. And he talks about in terms of kind of our pursuit of status dependent on our position in um, society and how that drives culture forward. And that is kind of like a, these are things that um, uh, 
you know, sociologists have talked about for over 100 years. Um, George Simmel, the uh, German sociologist, wrote something in the early 20th century. His essay was simply titled On Fashion. And he talked about how um, people adopt the fashions of the elites. And as soon as they do, mm. the elite move on and do something else. And that mm. was true in the early 20th century. And the only way that it's evolved, really, is that um, the elite, quote unquote, are not just financial elites, but they may be cultural elites. We may be trying to adopt the fashions of uh, musicians or, you know, poets or whoever holds like cultural capital. Um, so David, David writes about this a little bit in his book. And then he also ends it, the, the novel part of his book, he does say something novel in the book, but it's, it's towards the end. And he talks about what you had just mentioned is that the internet has now driven uh, fashion towards these like fleeting fads. So as he puts it, in previous decades or eras, there was a strong aesthetic associated with it. If you think of the 1960s, you can think of the mods and the fishtail parkas and the kind of slim... Uh, but, you know, they call them bum freezers because the suit jackets were so short. They, they wear these bum freezers with drain pipe trousers. And then in the 1970s, you have the hippies, you have, um, you know, kind of bohemians with bell bottoms and, you know, flowery shirts. The 80s was a time of power suits and Armani, these padded jackets. Mm. Um, 90s, you had business casual and more sportswear so and so forth. And David's point is that... Um, the fashion of today has, like, if you were to look at an episode of Friends, it would not look that dramatically different than how people dress today. And we've had a long period of kind of stagnation in terms of fashion. And he thinks partly, this is partly because of how the internet works, is that instead of these era-defining trends... We have fleeting fads because things cycle in and out of culture so quickly online. I mm. somewhat think that's, I, th I think that is somewhat true. I think part of my pushback is that um, we do see some changes. I think I can point out an early 2000s outfit. I think I can point out um, yeah. kind of like early hipster cafe culture. Um, like fixie bikes. I think I can, like, to give an example, right now we're in this moment where silhouettes are filling out again. So people are wearing much looser silhouettes. Um, and that is, that's change in culture. Like, the, the in the early 2000s, people wore really, really slim clothes. And they continue to do so. Um, that, that kind of look, that slim, tight look has only spread through culture. So now, in, in the early 2000s, wearing very slim fit clothes was you know, kind of like fashion forward and kind of, um, you know, uh, 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 fashionable and, and trendy at the time and kind of edgy. But now in, you know, the early 2020s, that's like something that you see on like Matt Walsh and like very um, non, right. like people who are definitely not challenging anything. Um, so mm -hmm. or they're not challenging. They're not, I don't know. They're not challenging. I guess it depends on your political views, but they're not they're not particularly edgy people, let's say. They're, 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 uh, they're rallying for a very conventional life. So like Ben Shapiro wears very, very tight clothes, Matt Walsh. Um, and so what you see is, especially with also younger people, they're wearing, you know, baggier fits, partly because they see millennials as wearing slim fit clothes and they don't want to dress like their parents. So I think that's, <laughs> I think that's a 
meaningful change. So I talked to David about that, about I think we do still see some change, but I agree that broadly we, do, we don't see, you know, like the, the switch from the, in the 1970s, there was a lot of challenging for gender norms. Um, men were wearing long hair and, and flowery, you know, kind of uh, shirts. Um, and then all of a sudden we move into the 80s and it's like, it's like whiplash. It's like the, the most gender conforming power suit, power banking, uh, power banking, greed is good kind of aesthetic. Um, and that is, we don't see that kind of dramatic of a shift anymore. Um, whether that's because of the internet, I don't know, but um, I think there's some truth in David's argument. Mm. Something that I was thinking about, um, you sort of touched on it just now, is also um, about uh, the kind of, for lack of a better term, like return, like the sort of like return to old styles. And I, I, I don't want to, because I, I want to sort of move on a little bit to talk about returns to tradition in a second. But in terms of like the recycling of old styles, and I'm thinking like, you know, you know, your sort of like dark academia trends, your sort of like, you know, 2000s revival trends and where these sort of things are sort of looking back in time. I wondered whether you like, do you have any thoughts on like why that is the case? Uh, it's, so it, it doesn't it doesn't really feel like we're kind of seeing newer trends, like something that I don't want. I don't want to necessarily say innovative is the right term. But um, where sort of like the, the styles being adopted by younger people seem to be tend to sort of be fixated on like looking backwards rather than um, anything kind of like evolving on on a like I don't know millennial styles. I don't know. I, I guess I when I was thinking about this, I was also just like has I was also wondering whether like has the sort of like whole smart casual aesthetic kind of killed any like how much of an effect has that had on like fashion generally? And does that sort of mean that you can't really develop or build on that style? And so the only way to kind of innovate, so to speak, is to look backwards. I think it's true that fashion is um, at the moment very, very backwards looking, but that's almost kind of always been true. The only kind of Mm. like big breaks (laughs) was like the late nineties when you see um, designers like Rick Owens and uh, Yohi Yamamoto and, uh, Ray Kawakuba, these kind of very, this like, br- this dramatic break towards these very different forms. But even them, you know, like, y- you can kind of see kind of some, when you when you listen to some of Rick Owens' interviews, he talks about how old Hollywood glamour and, um, you know, kind of informs a bit of his, his aesthetic. Um, you know, there's some kind of punk elements in some of the Japanese avant-garde. So Japanese, Fashion has always kind of looked backwards, but it's true that we are in a moment that is like truly looking backwards. Um, (laughs) I don't think that that's, I think that's different from the smart casual aesthetic. And I don't know why we're particularly in this moment. Even when people try to break away from the past, they end up doing it in these very formulaic ways. It's like, these are the correct ways to challenge tradition. Um, and then it ends up being like its own look. And that's partly because, um, in my view, good fashion is often like language. And I say this often on my mm. Twitter account, is that the way to think of fashion is not to think of it as a pure artistic ex- expression, like the way you might throw paint on canvas, but to think of it in terms of like sentences, like writing a sentence. And Noam Chomsky is famous for a sentence, colorless green ideas sleep furiously, as an example of a sentence that is grammatically correct, 
but semantically nonsensical. It has no, it has no real meaning. So um, I think fashion is sort of that way. Like we dress not in this like wild, expressive, creative way, but a good outfit often communicates something to viewers. And it says, um, I'm traditional or I'm non-traditional or I'm trying to convey masculine or feminine or all these different things. Mm. And in doing so, we rely on the language that has already been built. It's just like mm. writing a sentence, right? There, There is a way to write a sentence that means something. At the same time, you can still use language in very creative and personal and innovative ways. There's still slang. There's still, um, you know, like you think of E. Cummings, the way he wrote poems, like the way the structure is, is very different than um, the conventional, quote unquote, rules for, for grammar. Um, so there are still ways to be very expressive and avant-garde, but to write a sentence well also means conveying meaning, and conveying meaning means working along some type of established structure. I think that's partly why um, fashion has always looked backwards, but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, um, there can't be some innovation and some kind of personalization as well. Mm. Um, and then speaking of like going back and like the idea of sort of going back the return to tradition thing, I I, I could not have you uh, on here without talking about like one of the freaks that sort of appear in your mentions quite a lot, uh, which is uh, right wing freaks uh, and just like the idea of um, you just kind of like the return to ma- the crisis of masculinity, the return to tradition and the way in which like aesthetics kind of reflect that. Um, we touched on it a little bit um, earlier about the sort of like YouTube menswear accounts and how that sort of is tied into the idea of like men's self-improvement. Um, when I was watching some of these videos and you're probably a lot more familiar with them than I, uh, I think what like the sort of like pristine example is um, a guy called Tana Guzzi, Tana Guzzi. Um, but he seems to sort of be this kind of male fashion influencer who is sort of leading this charge on this idea that like, you know, modern clothing is effeminate and like this is contributing to like the femininity of like, you know, men. And so we to return to tradition, like, you know, you sort of need like this kind of like your clothing and your aesthetics are sort of essential to that. I'm, I'm not going to make a comment on how he looks uh, just on the basis that like I'm currently wearing like sweatpants and a t-shirt and I say, I feel like I have no right to sort of comment on how people look, but the sort of broader underlining ideology of that feels like more common to me. And I wondered whether you had any thoughts as someone who like has studied the history of menswear and often sort of corrects people when they sort of make assumptions about what classically was defined as like, you know, masculine wear. Um, how have you kind of like responded or even sort of observed this sort of um, surge of right wing like influences who are kind of promoting their ideology through this very kind of what seems to be a historical idea of what a kind of classical traditional man should look like? Well, I, I hear two questions um, in that. One is um, the issue of gender and clothing. And I think that's um, a very complicated topic. Uh, a, a man could wear um, a woman's item, a, a woman's wear item, and either look feminine or even more masculine. It just kind of depends. Um, sure. So yeah. I've seen some guys wear quote unquote feminine things and they look more masculine because of it, because of how the clothing interacts with their body and, and their identity and, and the way they wear it. 
And then I've seen some people wear traditionally masculine things, but in feminine ways. You know, like, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's a, a, a big topic. Um, and, and, and as you noted, our ideas, our markers for what's considered traditional masculine have, like, changed over time. Men used to wear high heels and, you know, all sorts of um, mm-hmm. things that would be coded as feminine now. The issue of um, this kind of, like, um, this type of, this certain type of right-wing influencer, part of me is, um, I, I, have a, I, I have a view that, you know, like, clothing is just clothing and people take it up for different reasons. So there are some people who might want to take up, you know, they have an interest in clothing just because they want to get a date or they want to, mm. I don't know, climb up the corporate ladder or whatever. And I think those reasons are perfectly valid. I mean, they're, you know, that's like someone's choice and that's a perfectly valid reason to get in clothing. I personally see myself as just purely a clothing enthusiast. And I mean that in the purest sense of the term. So when I see these kind of accounts, to me, they're not the same as what I'm into because I grew up on forums and blogs where guys would like Mm. really, you know, like the discourse around like pad stitching and like neppy denim and like, you know, the arguments over gemming, like people, I mean, these were like, people went nuts, you know, like this is, there are, (laughs) I mean, the way that people debated these things and argued over them and, and like that's the stuff that gets me excited. Like, how is something made? What's the history of something? What is, um, you know, like, what is this historical style, these breakdowns? I am purely a clothing enthusiast. I just love clothing. And then there are some guys <clears throat> who use clothing as a kind of um, an extension of their politics. So they're prime, in my view, they're primarily about politics. And they are upset about the modern world for whatever reason. And so clothing is then just an extension of their primary interest. And then some of the other guys on YouTube are using clothing as this kind of broader package of like how to be more of a man or how to be how to improve your life and all this stuff. And I don't have any personal views or interest in that. Um, I don't, I'm not saying that, you know, people shouldn't improve their lives or... Uh, gender isn't important or anything like that. I just, you know, like you sent me some links uh, for some of these videos and I got to be honest, like I watched a minute and I just got bored about like, um, <laughs> like one guy was talking about why you shouldn't masturbate. And I was just like, I, after like a yeah. minute, I was well, like, he, yeah. I, and this is not, this is not, I don't, I just don't have any views. I don't, um, sure. You know, I just don't care. Like why, what if you, if you don't want to, if you don't want to masturbate, that's fine. I, I, I just don't have any views and I don't care. So after like sure. after like a minute, I was just like, this is deathly boring. Um, <laughs> I feel like that's a content crisis as well to a certain degree because the guy in question, I won't name, I won't name him because I feel like we have enough mutuals, not mutuals, but like enough sort of degrees of separation for it to be discovered. <laughs> but like he was a guy that I used to watch because he was around about the same height as me. Um, so sort of, sort of on like the lower end of like, you know, the five foot scale. Um, but was able to sort of like provide and like was one of the first YouTube accounts where I was like, okay, well, this guy who is like around about the same height as me is able to sort of like put outfits together. I've really struggled with this. And so I found his content like quite helpful. And then, you know, as I sort of dipped in and out, like, you know, you sort of, it sort of shows up on your YouTube feed. And what I kind of recognized was that, oh, he is now making content 
in the sort of like self-improvement space and though his channel is still like about like him just doing kind of Uniqlo hauls and stuff it's now veering towards that direction and so my kind of broader question is whether and again this goes back to the idea of like the all-encompassing platform the death of forum culture and like how that has affected people with like niche hobbies and interests where the sort of demand and the pressure to make content kind of means that they have to engage with like the sort of animating driver of social media, which for the most part is politics. Right. And so I'm wondering whether, um, you know, we're sort of seeing, and you know, this certainly doesn't just apply to fashion. I think it applies to most kind of like things where hobbyists and enthusiasts are kind of like the central audience, but as the content creator is sort of like searching for traffic, they kind of have to engage with like the political discourse that animates everything that goes onto these platforms. And as a result, you know, everything sort of takes on this very heightened political dimension that maybe like in the past wasn't ever going to necessarily be the case. And I wondered whether like what we're seeing is like menswear going through that trajectory. Like I know that clothing has always been political and like there have always been kind of like political choices and dimensions to the ways in which people choose clothes and how that is produced. I think that's like quite a big question in and of itself. But in terms of menswear content, I've never really seen it as politically charged as I currently am. And I'm wondering whether you've sort of noticed something similar. Well, there's, I occasionally write um, a political angle on clothes and I'll talk about, um, you know, issues of uh, gender and, and, and menswear. Or I'll talk about, um, you know, uh, late, you know, wages uh, and fast fashion and so on and so forth. Those are political topics. I mean, I think often people get upset at me because I'm, I'm a little bit more political than they think a men's writer should be. Um, and there is a whole, I mean, literature on politics and and fashion. So when you look at academic books on fashion, many of them take sociological, political, economic angles on this topic. I just mm. think that um, this particular online niche of um uh, Tanner Guzzi and these—it's just kind of a dumb angle. The 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 uh, right. I just don't think the content's very smart, um, and <laughs> it ends up being kind of, you know, if you want to improve yourself and you're into that, it's just not my scene. So I I neither find sure. the content very smart, and I don't particularly care about weightlifting and not masturbating and. Um, whatever all these other topics <laughs> that are popular on these on these niches um so i just don't there is part of me that's just kind of like everyone has their own relationship with clothes and every relationship is valid if you want to dress to get dates or whatever that's fine um but i am not dressing to get dates i am just like engaging in like menswear discourse and talking with other guys that are like obsessed with clothes so to some degree i'm like the stuff that I'm into is like the male version of Man Repeller, if, if people remember that blog. <laughs> Man Repeller was mm. a women's wear blog, and the name was a play on the fact that the writers were into clothing that repelled men. And I'm the same way. I, I'm just into clothes that I think are joyful and are interesting and uh, are kind of like, it's just its own kind of hobbyist niche. And like the that particular section of menswear they have this kind of like convention where they all get together for this kind of like general 
man improvement stuff. Um, like how to, I don't know how to start a business and how to stand up straighter and how to make money. I just don't, I just don't care. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> just, I just don't have any I feel, interest. I mean, I feel like, it, yeah, I feel like it's a good approach to take. Um, but I, and you know, like I, I totally sympathize with you. I've spoken to like other people who have like similar kinds of hobbies, like, you know, in art, music and so on, where they sort of take an approach of like, kind of really not wanting to be involved in these conversations, but ending up kind of coerced into them, whether they like it or not. And like, so, and I, and I was sort of seeing that like with some of your posts where, you know, as you're sort of have again, like to go back to sort of like the oddballs that get like unnecessarily mad at you or interpreting things in particular ways. I wonder whether like that does sort of force you to have to reckon with like, you know, at what, like at what point you sort of touched on this a little bit earlier, but I, I was wondering like, at what point do you sort of say, at what point do you take like certain criticism seriously? And at what point can you like see someone being like, okay, this person is either sort of like getting mad at me in bad faith, or this is just something that I am not kind of qualified to sort of like talk about. So like, do you have any like lines in terms of where you'll engage and where you won't? Um, well, in the very beginning, you know, before, before I started getting a bunch of followers, as I know, I, I was posting about like Japanese workwear and all sorts of different aesthetics. And as my account has grown, I've, somewhat um, held off on some of that posting because I don't want to have to read a bunch of comments of like who would spend all this money to look homeless or like this is is this a derelict collection and it's just like do you actually work in your workwear um, so yeah I don't want to have to engage with like a bunch of I think very predictable responses when I post certain things so I I, I don't post as much Japanese workwear like niche fashion anymore. And I've leaned more into traditional aesthetics, um, which it's often tailoring. And in the beginning, as a consequence of that, I got caught up where people would pigeonhole me as this kind of like return guy. And he's like problematic and he's classist and he's like gender conforming and he's a capitalist and all this stuff. And I was just trying to emphasize that I don't care about any of those conversations. I'm just interested in clothing. And I think now, mm. after many, many months, most people get that. Most people know that I am just interested in clothing and am open to many different aesthetics, not just tailoring. Um, but yeah, I still get some of those comments. And for the most part, I just kind of ignore them. Um, I I don't know. I, I sort of feel like I'm just uh, playing with my own ball. Like I am just like into <laughs> clothes and... It's yeah. just what I'm into. And if people happen to love, find clothes interesting, like if they put on a, a chore coat or a suit jacket or something weird from, you know, like Capital, which is like this Japanese brand that I love, um, you know, if if they put on something and they love it and it makes them feel good, that's all I care about. Um, mm. And there are certain aesthetics within that that um, I favor, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm not open to other aesthetics. Um, I just yeah. consider myself a, a hobbyist and an enthusiast. Have you have you like faced any issues where like people have sort of seen you or interpreted you as being either an authority or someone who sort of considers themselves to be an authority? Because I think like multiple times in this interview, but also like in other places where people have spoken to you, you sort of made the point that you're a hobbyist and enthusiast and that you're actually not that interested in like telling people what they should and shouldn't wear, like as far as you're concerned, like it's not your business, um, which I think is like a completely fair position. But I do wonder whether like, and again, this is like an issue to do with Twitter as well, where like as you sort of accumulate more followers and you kind of gain a broader presence, uh, either by choice or not, 
various various then this kind of assumption that like you kind of are considered to be an authority and therefore people start engaging with you as an authority. So I was, when I was like going through your mentions, like there are certain people who like will always ask you for fashion advice. And I wondered, number one, like how do you sort of respond to that? Especially if like you're not someone who necessarily, or like even on a very basic level, it's very difficult to give someone fashion advice, I assume, because so much of it is very much like tailored towards, well, so much of that would be dependent on like who they are and what they're like and what they're into and all that type of stuff. But then at the same time, I also wondered whether interacting or even just sort of sharing things that you're really interested and passionate about is difficult when people kind of assume that maybe you think that you are an authority, even if like you don't think you are like, have there been any sort of like weird interactions or hostile interactions that have emerged out of this kind of perception of, yeah, or or just like even sort of like the algorithm sort of temporarily favoring, like favoriting your posts. Yeah, I get those reactions all the time. And I, you know, people say, I don't want to wear that. And I'm like, okay, I don't, I don't care. Don't (laughs) don't wear it then. I don't, it's sort of like a a guy might be really into cars and he has a view of what a good car looks like, but he doesn't care if you drive a different car. But if you ask him, what is a good car or what car should I buy? He may have views of what he thinks you should buy, but it doesn't mean that he goes down the street and hates everyone who drives a different car. That's like an unreasonable existence, you know? So, um, yeah, sometimes people will be like, um, uh, one thing that I think I often get caught up in is people think that I judge people's, like I, I often have to stress that I don't judge people's inner qualities based on their clothes. So I can look at an outfit and say, that's a bad outfit. I think, you know, certain outfits are ugly or incoherent or don't make any sense or are not pleasing. But that doesn't Mm. mean that I think the person is bad, incapable, unintelligent, uh, immoral. Um, And that also doesn't mean that just because someone is well-dressed that I think that they are smart, capable, moral, like it's just an outfit. So, um, Sometimes people come into my mentions and say there are perfectly fine people who don't wear this. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know. Uh, or they'll say, <laughs> I don't want to wear that. And be like, that's fine. That like, you don't like the the only thing that's weird to me is when people follow me and they feel the need to constantly come into my mentions and tell me they don't want to wear something. And I just think, then why are you following a menswear account? Like that's like following a car account yeah. and then always telling the person, I don't want to drive a nicer car. It's like, fine, then, then don't follow a car account. That's like a weird, that's like a weird decision on your part. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't see myself as an, an authority. I'm just an enthusiast. And if people yeah. happen to want my opinion on something, I'm happy to share it. But, um, that doesn't necessarily mean yeah, that, I, I, I'm, that I think everyone should wear a certain and, thing. Mm. Well, I, I sort of suppose, again, this is sort of where the kind of, this is sort of where I think like the platform mediation is very much like the driver of this because like from what I, I was a forums guy when I was younger and obviously there were sort of like big names on forums and everything. And so you could sort of see like where their rankings were. You could sort of see like why they became these kind of like, even because they were posting there for a long time or like they had like sort of specialist knowledge and everything. But on Twitter where you don't really have like, where those metrics are really very much like your follow account. And, you know, now they've introduced like, you know, kind of other types of things, but it's not as sort of, 
built into the system and obviously as it's changed like the idea of like who constitutes an authority who constitutes someone who should be taken seriously like is very very different on twitter in fact like there is no sort of real understanding of how those types of social relations should even be understood yet let alone mediated and i do wonder whether that type of behavior which i've i've also experienced like you know from my own capacity whether that type of behavior is kind of people not really knowing what they how to interact with people on these types of platforms um and so it's this mixture of like you know your identity is kind of um you know some most for the most part your identity will be somewhat public so people kind of like have a kind of real life kind of contextualization of you to a certain degree but there is still enough anonymity that they can kind of like make up whatever they want in those gray areas and so i do wonder whether that type of oddball behavior really comes out of the idea that no one really knows whether you should treat twitter as like a social network or as a forum and where it's kind of like changing you then have people interacting in these really weird ways yeah i I feel that I mean my subject's menswear, which is really low stakes. Sorry. If you buy yeah. if you They're buy gone, a pair of bad pants, uh, nothing really bad is going to happen to the world. So I'm perfectly fine with this kind of like <laughs> vague, nebulous kind of system for my area. And if people don't see me as I don't, I don't even see myself as an authority. So I just again, I just see myself as an enthusiast. So if people want to take my opinion, you know, that's fine. I my opinion is mm. no is no better or worse than someone someone else's opinion. I just have my views. But I do think that Twitter should institute some way to, um, to get better opinions and authorities on certain subjects that do matter, like climate change or um, whatever. You know, like there, there are some areas that matter, certainly matter a lot more mm. than fashion. And there are certain uh, people in those areas who have more meaningful expertise than a guy who just happens to have a certain kind of view. Like they, these are like real, um, they are real beliefs. They have, they have real grounding and they're on, on important issues. And one of my worries is that the current system of uh, blue check avenue sharing and the for you timeline rewards a lot of ragey clickbaiting um, engagement. So, the people that end up building large followings and end up getting um, a lot of responses are people who tweet controversial, like for example, I recently tweeted something, I tweeted a thread on how to find uh, quality men's shoes. And I started the thread knowing that people would get mad. Like I just knew. So I put up a tweet, the, fir- the very first tweet was here are here are two photos. One is a photo of a shoe that costs $1,300. And another is a photo of a shoe that costs $150, which is which. And I knew that people were going to get mad over mm. the fact that there is a shoe that costs $1,300. <laughs> I knew that people would not be able to resist themselves and, and tweet, how can anyone spend $1,300? This is terrible. This is the end of the world. These people should die and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I thought the rest of the thread would be informative and people would take away something from it. That doesn't mean that I think that everybody should spend $1,300 on shoes. Um, I just wanted to (laughs) get people's attention. And, you know, after I Mm. tweeted that, I thought there must be people who, like, like the the rage that will, will generate from that thread, that shoe thread, washes over me. I don't care anymore. 
And I, it made me think like there are there must be people who now tweet racist things and they no longer care that you call them racist and you try to cancel them and they do all this stuff. They do it yeah, knowing sure, yeah. that they will get millions of views, hundreds if not thousands of comments, thousands of retweets, mm. and they'll control discourse and they'll get thousands of followers after this tweet. And they'll earn a lot more money because of the new blue check ad revenue system, the the for you timeline. All of this is generated towards getting you to be pissed off and sharing and engagement and to make this person money. And Twitter should find a way to uh, demonetize tweets that are obviously false. So if you tweet a conspiracy theory and someone says, and and the and the community note says, this is just factually untrue, you, your tweet should be demonetized because you should not be able to make money off of tweeting false information that enrages people. Because that when you tweet false mm. information, a lot of people are going to retweet you to correct you and they're going to comment to correct you. Whereas if you tweet factual information, nobody feels the need to do that because it's <laughs> like saying the sky is blue. And Twitter should find a way to um, identify people whose opinion does mean more than like just the random person. So certain people that are economists or mm. sociologists or uh, climate scientists, these people's opinion, in my in my view, mean more than the average Joe. And Twitter should find a way to elevate these people versus mm. the person who's just going to tweet some crazy thing to get engagement, to gain followers, to make money. Um, but, you know... Um, I mean, that's, you know, anyone who's listening to this <laughs> knows that Elon Musk's whole view is like, this is the, the town square and like, you know, this kind of, um, you know, this like free form debate is how the truth will come out and there's no censorship, blah, blah, blah. And so I just think that the current system, though, rewards um, grifters. So in, mm. in my position, I don't see myself as an authority and don't care if people see me as an authority and... Um, pants is such a low consequence, you know, kind of subject. But in other areas, I think Twitter should find a way to reward truthful information and to identify people who actually know what they're talking about over um, these kind of, and, and it's, you know, um, there, there's, there's, there are two brothers, the Kerosene brothers. I, I don't even know the last names. I blocked both of them because there are just these like figures now on Twitter who's, <laughs> um, who have these like mini kingdoms that just enrage mm. people on all sides that um, I just don't think is good for discourse. Um, no. We should return <laughs> it to people who write books and are specialists and, and have like articles published in peer-reviewed journals. We should not have grifters yeah. and, um, and YouTubers and all of these kind of like um, people who know nothing but except to how to enrage people. Yeah. Well... Mm. I don't know what to say to that. So that's, that could be a very long conversation, uh, not least because we sort of cover, yeah, we talk about this quite a lot, but you're completely right. Yeah. And I wish, I wish things could be that way. And maybe one day they will. Maybe uh, when that happens, if that happens, you can come back on again, uh, which is to say, I feel like we've run out of time. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for coming on. And thank you so much for spending time with me to talk about uh, menswear and also just like your really good work. Um, I've actually, one thing I didn't, one thing I did want to say actually before you guys, I really have like enjoyed like a lot of the threads that you've done and also a lot of the articles on uh 
on uh, your website as well. Um, and if people like haven't read your writing, uh, how can they do that? Oh, they can just go to dieworkwear.com. Um, that's where I do uh, most of my writing on like, I often touch on like sociological issues there, but then if they're looking for like service writing, like how to dress better, um, I do most of that writing at Put This On and they can just search the archive there. It's like a 12 year archive with a lot of material on how to basically dress better. Mm. Yeah, there was like, um, there was an article that I read. I think the one that you wrote about like larger men um, and like the one of the, I think the guy that you wrote about like had a very cool jacket on. And I've been looking for that jacket like in my size since then. I think like the photos are really good. Like everything on there is really great. So if you want to like learn about menswear and stuff, definitely do that. And also follow Derek if like Twitter hasn't sort of like made you do that already. Um, <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, yeah, in terms of uh, in terms of us, like this was just me on the episode, but I will, I do want to say, uh, this is bonus content. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Thank you for subscribing. It helps us to uh, run the show without ads. It also helps us to be editorially independent, which is what something really, really we really like. Um, quickly follow Phoebe's work, follow her Substack. There's really good writing on there. Listen to masters of our own domain, which is the podcast that she does with Milo Edwards. There is also, um, the Rome series that they've done with Patrick Wyman. Check that out too. And then a final thing, uh, listen to kill James Bond, which is, uh, the show of our producer Devon. And you can follow Devon at Devon underscore on earth on twitter.com. If you don't do that already, you probably do, but if you don't, then yeah, go do that. Really, really good stuff just all around. Um, and until next time, we'll catch you later. Bye.